0: What's up everybody, welcome back to the Legendary Habitat Podcast. This is your host, Colin Koskinen, owner of Legendary Habitat. A couple things real quick before we dive into this podcast. Um, A couple updates with me and some new things for 2023 I want to announce. Um, If you have not heard yet, uh, for 2023 I'm going to be a 360 uh, blinds uh, dealer and installer. So that's something exciting, new for this year. Uh, if you're interested in any blinds or installation services, reach out to me. Uh, my info will be uh, in the description of these podcasts. Uh, if you have any more uh, questions or you want to go on and see these different blinds and uh, services and costs, uh, be, feel free to go on my website and click on the 360 blinds tab, and that will take you to more information about those. Also, another thing new for this year, I am now a uh, Reveal cell camera dealer. Um, along with Tacticam action cameras. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's just another thing I'll be offering to my consulting clients and anyone else who is interested in uh, purchasing cameras um, to run their property. I've ran these cameras for probably about four years now and uh, I've had awesome success with them. Never had really any issues to speak of. Um, I've got a lot of buddies uh, that run them on their properties and uh, yeah, overall really pleased with their product. Uh, Reveal reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in doing this. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll uh, I'll jump on and uh, just another thing to add um, to my services. So if you guys are interested in those, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'll probably have those up on my website uh, or some more info on those up on my website probably by the end of January, beginning of February, hopefully. Um, I'm not sure exactly when I'm gonna have all those in stock but I'll definitely keep everybody up to date on social media and podcasts and when I'll have those available for purchase. So with that we will dive into this podcast i um, excited for this we got steve shirk on here with shirk's guide service diving into some public land tactics buck bedding uh, a whole bunch of really cool stuff so definitely a, uh, a fun listen we've got on here uh, steve shirk with shirk's guide service over in pennsylvania we're going to be talking about a lot, a lot of uh, really cool things uh, some public land tactics um a lot of cool really data that uh, Steve has, has dove into and done a lot of um, research over in the, in the last couple of years so I'm excited to have him on here are you there Steve
1: yes sir I'm right here
0: awesome well thanks a lot for coming on here I appreciate it my pleasure yeah so uh, yeah if you want to give a little bit of background on kind of how you got into uh, kind of the business you're into now and uh, a little background about what you do that would be awesome
1: sure yeah um so I've been guiding geez gotta be about 12 years now or so um I started out grouse guiding all kind of just like an accident um I've, I've always done some outdoor writing and I wrote an article about grouse hunting because uh, this magazine you know asked me to write a article basically specific related to the area that I hunt in and you know, I, I, so I wrote that article, and next thing you know, all these grouse hunters from all over the country read it and wanted me to start taking them grouse hunting, so I said, oh, what the heck, I might as well, uh, you know, I guess you, for one, it's hard to refuse money for, you know, someone asking you to take them hunting, so <laughs> the long story short, it was never really a, a true plan of mine, but uh, I guided grouse for like four or five years and just was always way more passionate whitetail hunter and so i switched over to the whitetail thing and you know i've been doing the actual whitetail stuff i don't know for probably roughly 10 years now give or speak a year or two um wow. but uh and just you know it started out pretty slow for me because pennsylvania isn't uh, you know a very uh highly known state for for i don't want to say deer hunting but you know maybe trophy caliber and just it's not a, a very well sought after state for people you know looking to go for a hunt you know out of the country yeah, sure but uh just worked really hard at it um and it's kind of my passion you know along with uh just working hard uh eventually um more and more people started taking interest upon me and um i'll say in the past you know in the past three four or five years now i know i've been completely booked out um you know, maximize my clientele to the most that I could handle, and uh, you know it's just gone really well for me, and definitely uh, the good Lord has blessed me uh, for doing so. Yeah,
0: that's that really cool. That's awesome to hear. Uh, hear how you've kind of progressed and, and built it up over the years, yeah. and uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, have you have you noticed uh, a lot of the same habitat types? You know, kind of from the grouse. That you, when you used to guide for grouse, have you kind of be able to correlate those two with whitetail habitat and all?
1: Absolutely, and that's uh, honestly, I I probably grouse hunted four or five times a year. You know, back in the day, um, I was I've always been a true you know most passionate deer hunter, and then uh, so what you know I would just notice like grouse and deer sharing a lot of the same habitat, mainly for the most part you know cover related. Um, Not so much food sources, although, you know, there are some food sources that they share. But uh, when, you know, when the magazine asked me to write an article about grouse hunting, you know, my first thought was, well, geez, I'm really not that great of a grouse hunter. But then again, like, if I'm seeing grouse and, you know, in correlation to, you know, to my scouting and, and, you know, I'm able to find grouse just as much as I am deer, you know, I'm sure I could put something together.
0: So, uh,
1: yeah. you know, that's, that's really how it all took place was just my deer scouting was
0: leading me to, to, you know, these big grouse numbers. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting for sure. You kind of have that background in, in the yep. grouse and, and know that, and then, um, kind of correlate that with, with hunting and, and scouting. So I've heard, uh, kind of diving into more of the uh, publicly land scouting side of things. Um, I've heard that you cover quite a bit of ground, you know most of your scouting and and spend a lot of days in the woods um, which obviously you know as a lot of guys who have probably hunted public land it takes uh, a lot of you know days and a lot of hours scouting to you know get on a a mature buck you know especially in pressured states like you know Michigan and Pennsylvania So, so yeah if you want to go in a little bit of background on on how much time you spend and you know where you kind of focus more your more your time while you're scouting um, you know, I think there's a lot of guys that, you know, you can go out and scout a lot, but you know, if you can be more proficient and um, efficient with your time and where you're scouting, I think you can, you know, ultimately learn more and cover more, you know, sure. topic or uh, you know, better areas. So.
1: Yeah. Um, so I do cover, you know, a really a really big piece of ground, probably close to you know 100,000 acres, entirely public land. I've actually never even. You know, for the most part, hunted uh, private land. Never killed anything on private land. Um, there's just so much public land around me that uh, really, there's really no need to be hunting private land. Uh, there's just so much, you know, so much good public available. Um, but you know, it. Uh, you know, the thing about public land is you you don't have any control over the environment the deer live in. It seems like every year things are a little bit different. Yep. you can't control food sources you can't control hunting pressure uh habitat in general you have no control over so you always got to keep an open mind and be ready to adapt you know from season to season um so a lot of my off-season scouting because i do a ton of it in fact i just literally got in the door here at my house at 12 i've been scouting the whole day um <laughs> Of year to scout maybe we'll touch on that later
0: but yeah.
1: um, you know my point is is it's not so much you know my postseason scouting year-round scouting it's not so much like okay I'm gonna set a stand here for sure next year and kill this buck um, a lot of what I do is get to know my areas better um, get to get to know where you know where are certain oak trees in this area where are all the different covers? um and just the more you know about an area the more you're going to be able to adapt as things change from season to season if you rely on uh the same thing to happen year after year it just doesn't i swear every year here is a little bit different so you know just getting to know my areas more thoroughly every year um and learning new areas uh that's what a lot of my scouting consists of as well as uh um, learning a lot more about specific bucks and seeing what bucks are still alive, and those kind of things
0: that that plays a big part into the, the scouting that I'm doing year round. Okay, yeah, no, for sure. That's definitely uh, Definitely kind of leads into some other stuff that I want to you know would love to dive into more. Um, one of those being you know obviously you kind of touched on it, but identifying those those changing food sources. Um, you know obviously. <coughs> obviously you know you're going after more mature bucks um, but obviously I think most of that uh, mature buck movement is you know holds so around a lot of that doe movement um, yep. and focusing around you know in some cases around those food sources depending on you know the year um, and the type of habitat um, so yeah I don't know if you want to if you want to dive in a little bit about you know different food sources that you've found have been really good I know I saw in, on your uh, latest Instagram post kind of focusing around those briar patches, um, mm-hmm. you know, different native brows and stuff like that. Um, you know, different food sources that some guys maybe don't think about other than, sure. you know, just mass. Yeah. Suit.
1: Yep. So, I mean, obviously, and I'm sure most of your listeners would agree, acorns by far, or at least, you know, in, in big woods, uh, acorns are probably your number one food source if you have them. Unfortunately um, you can never rely on acorns, uh, we haven't had acorns in two years here, um, and we went four or five years in a row with having them, so even these past two seasons has been, you know, a big learning curve for me as well, because, especially, you know, for guiding, and a lot of my own hunting is in the rut, uh, we focus a lot on concentrated doe groups, and when you have acorns, does tend to stay in that area, you know, pretty frequently, But then when there is less food, it's kind of like they scavenge and they're a little more unpredictable, which makes the the rut even more unpredictable as it is because as does are moving around, you know, bucks are going to be moving around. So um, it's definitely, you know, these past couple seasons have been more challenging without acorns. Uh, I will say, you know, talking specific acorns, I'm actually a, a bigger fan of red oak versus white oak um, you'll hear a lot of hunters say that, you know, the if you have white oaks, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna be the the most preferred food source over any really anything else, and even other acorns. Um, I've actually seen it a little bit different. Um, number one, what I'm seeing is, it seems like your your white oaks. Uh, they, they often tend to be a little bit far from bedding because they're, they're a lot of our white oaks are on Southern slopes and most of our bedding is not on Southern slopes. Usually most of our bedding is North and East slopes. So you'll find a a little bit more night activity, um, into those white oaks where, you know, a lot of our red oaks are, I mean, they'll grow on South slopes too, but a lot of our red oaks are up high closer to bedding and, uh, they'll grow better on, you know, the east and north slopes. So red oaks have always been a little bit better for me than white oaks. Another issue, too, I've seen with white oaks is they're like candy to bears. Um, and mm. it, it seems as if, uh, you know, you have a good white oak crop, the bears get in there so heavy that, you know, possibly they're deterring some deer from hitting them, or uh, it's just because the bears are in there. So much that they really eat them up as fast as they're hitting the ground. So I wouldn't always say that, uh, that white oaks are the most preferred acorn. Um, I'll also touch on, uh, you know, some browse sources too. Um, obviously like you brought up, uh, clear cutting, uh, when you have, uh, you know, different types of regeneration, uh, definitely, uh, that's like a year round type food source for deer even though, you know, I talk so highly on acorns, browse sources are a must for deer. They have to have them year-round. You're only going to have acorns for a small portion of the year. Yeah. Uh, there's got to be other feed, you know, food sources in the area to, to keep deer around and keep them healthy, and uh, definitely uh, browse sources are a huge key. Um, there's so many different, you know, browse sources dependent on the time of the year, like uh, early season, it's not even so much woody browse. Uh, if you, as long as it's not too cold, and you know, it's a you know, it seems like anymore our early archery season could even be 70 degrees or whatever. So, <laughs> uh, a lot of your you know your plant and forb type browse is really good. Uh, one of the biggest, uh, most attractive uh, brows that I've seen like early season is what they call jewelweed. Um, and also another thing with some of that browse is it's full of water. So, uh, you know, when deer are eating a lot of that green, lush browse in the early season, they really don't have to move around much because they're getting both food and water for the most part from what they eat. Um, and then later in the year, uh, you know, things get a little less abundant. Um, but you'll find, like in that photo I posted today, or that video, uh, blackberry, briar, green briar, you know, black or raspberry that's that tends to be a great winter food source um, it kind of serves like as is a, is a food source through different seasons too early in the season the deer will eat the fruit or you know i'm talking maybe that's more throughout the summer but yeah. they'll go from eating the fruit then they'll also eat the leaves on it and then this time of year they're actually nipping you know off the soft ends of the plant itself so uh, even just knowing what browses is going to be uh, attractive to whitetails at different times of the year you know plays a big part and i don't want to ramble on too much but another thing too um you know it's not i don't want to say that uh, uh these sources are, are maybe the most nutrient for deer but i will say in a lot of areas right now unfortunately hemlock and fern um are kind of a major food source if you don't have much for clear cutting in an area yeah or if you have maybe too many deer um they really do a lot of you know they feed heavily on hemlock and fern especially this time of year so hopefully i was able to to round out you know a good variety of food sources for your listeners
0: yeah no that's that covers a a wide variety and, and like you said Those are always going to be changing food sources so being able to basically you know know and understand when those deer are going to be hitting those different food sources at that time of the year i think that's super important and you can apply that to almost every place you hunt whether it's private or public um so yeah i mean and like you said you can you know i use it a lot when i'm when i'm out on you know consulting with clients and stuff you know just by walking onto a property depending on where it's at and what the habitat type is you can tell the deer density and, and you know their preferred browse pretty quickly if you know if you know your plants. Um, yep, and you know. And uh,
1: I can just touch on one other thing too. I'll kind of explain some things that I went through this year when it comes to browse sources. Um, this year, what I did see because we had a really dry, really actually a dry summer. Um, for the most part, the fall was super dry, and it seemed like you know a lot of browse was not. It was really just mainly abundant on north and east slopes. And when you think about it, those are going to be the hillsides to see the less sun and probably hold the most moisture. Um, very little deer activity on south slopes um, and some west. Depends on, kind of just depends on how much west. If it's a hard west-facing slope, it still didn't get a lot of sun. But uh, anything that really got a lot of sun um, just seemed like those browse sources dried out a little faster than normal and uh if if the deer didn't switch to the north or east side of that ridge then they were way down in the bottoms. um so just keeping an eye on little things like that you know a real dry year can have an impact on plant life which like i said really overall that's a deer's number one food source so uh you know i mentioned earlier about having to adapt like that's the stuff that i deal with in the you know where I hunt is just every year Mother Nature is going to throw different things at you that you've got to be a ready you know be ready for and adjust to.
0: Yep, yep, for sure. Yeah, so kind of transitioning out of uh, food sources, obviously that plays a big role, um, but kind of moving more so into obviously you're out in Pennsylvania, so you've got a lot of different topography out there to work with. From what it sounds like, I'm not really familiar with Pennsylvania, um, <laughs> but you know why don't you kind of go into some of the ways that you're, um, you know, kind of identifying, um, using topography, you know, for, uh, for bedding. And then more specifically, you know, buck bedding and, um, you know, some different trail camera stuff that you've learned, uh, you know, through running a lot of different cameras in these different, you know, buck bedding areas and stuff.
1: Sure. Um, well, I will say I, I don't really focus much on actual topographical feet topographical features. Um, I look for other things first and then a lot of times I will then key in more on it with a topographical feature, uh, to possibly funnel deer movement. But, um, when it comes to buck bedding, um, I kind of break it down into three factors. Number one is going to be hunting pressure, hunting pressure, human activity is, is your number one, uh, influence and impact on where bucks are bedding. They, they do not want to be pressured their betting areas I mean they're safe zones they they uh, surely seek out areas where they don't want to feel pressured and feel safe so uh, you know hunting pressure is, is your number one uh, thing to, to keep in mind when it comes to buck betting secondly is cover um, cover I don't care you know you'll hear people say that bucks only bet on leeward sides or you know all that kind of stuff if for instance okay so this year we mainly had a predominant south wind so the leeward side would be the north side um however if you only had good cover on the south side and the and the north side is going to be wide open woods i'm telling you those bucks are going to take the cover over the leeward side now in, in some situations though um when you have cover on the leeward side, like if you had a good north sloping thicket, that's where I would go first because that kind of serves as the best of both worlds. You yep. get to have that leeward wind plus the cover. But you know, those three factors are—you know—that's kind of what I'm looking for first. Um, I hate hunting areas that you know that where there's a lot of other hunters. I mean, it's public land; it's somewhat unpredictable. But I try to try to get away from hunters the best. You know the best that i can in gun season it gets a little bit harder um but if you really want to zone in on a mature buck um it's going to be very hard to hunt if there's a lot of other people hunting that deer so yep. he's much more predictable uh when you can catch him in his own natural ways so you know hunting pressure like i said it's going to be the the biggest thing um sometimes though um you know if i if i find find a good bedding area um you know, I'll use the terrain to, uh, to try to funnel down his movements. Um, a lot of times, you know, I'll find bucks like betting in ravines. Uh, you'll tend to find, you know, some thermal currents in ravines. Um, there's usually a good visual advantage, you know, on one side of the ravine or the other. And a lot of times uh, what he'll do is he'll work up and down the sides of that ravine is he you know as he goes to and from to and from his you know his bed or he might have several beds in there a lot of times also you can pinch him down at the top of the ravine because that's usually the best crossing so it all honestly it all just depends on where you find the cover and the bedding and then like I said I might key in on a topographical feature if I feel that that's going to funnel his movements down
0: better for me okay yeah no that's that's interesting you say um you know obviously hunting pressure is the number one you know thing for for buck bedding and, and obviously you know, you know cover and um yep. topography kind of being the the three topics and that's interesting you bring that up because i've made a lot of the same observations you know visiting a lot of properties and what i've noticed on properties is you know obviously with hunting with uh being here in michigan we've got a lot of hunting pressure but every property's got a little bit different you know, amount of hunting pressure. Um, and I've noticed on properties that, you know, seem to be in a really high uh, hunter area, um, that those buck beds will typically be pushed more down. So if they've got, um, you know, low ground, uh, wetland, swamp like that, typically those buck beds I'll find, you know, deep down in that that swamp cover. Um, and yep. then some spots, you know, that don't have as much hunting pressure, maybe got a little bit better habitat on that high ground. That's typically where I'm found in, you know, 90% of my buck beds. Um, Yep,
1: and I when you brought up high ground, um, that's where I see the majority of my buck bedding, like
0: ninety percent, even a lot of doe bedding as well.
1: Um, one thing you know, because I hunt in the mountains though, um, this year it's probably late October when our bedding shifted because uh, once all the green browse dried up and deer weren't able to get their water or a lot of their water through what they're eating, um, we didn't. You know, like we have a lot of springs that kind of run off the hillsides and the mountains. Well, all those springs were dried up then. The only water source was way down in the bottoms. So there was a major shift in bedding, specifically doe bedding, which drew the bucks in because those does wanted to be much closer to water. So uh, yeah, certain you know definitely something to keep in mind as well when it comes to bedding.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's a, that's interesting. I think a lot of guys probably would overlook that. You know, if you're kind of going through a drought, that water becomes really important if they're not getting it through what they're eating.
1: And and also think about it like during the rut. Um, You know, I I think if someone was picturing like uh, a plan to hunt a water source, they would probably think, all right, I'm going to be doing it like early season when, you know, it's possibly like on an 80 degree warm day. And honestly, I don't see uh, that being a huge impact uh, even in the summer, like, I don't think deer go into these, these main water sources as much as what people think because I think they're getting a lot of their water through what they're eating. Not not saying 100%, but yep. still quite a bit. But, like you know, think about it. When all that green dries up and they have to change to a different food source, this is more, you know, specifically in a big wood situation. Um, and then you consider, like, a lot a lot more movement, you know, come rut, uh, a lot more, uh, you know, just especially where I hunt, like, hunting in mountains. So they're actually going to probably need more water uh, or go to a water source more in the rut uh, versus early in the season when there's just a lot more water available. So my point is uh, just because even if, even if it's cool weather in the rut and it's not, you know, unseasonably warm, definitely keep water in mind during prop because they're they're needing that water more
0: than than probably ever yeah yep for sure no I'd agree it's definitely it's both ends of the spectrum I think for sure you know there's an extreme yep. where you don't have water and then there's also an extreme where you've got lots of water and you know you don't really need to focus on it that much um, absolutely um, yeah for sure yeah so you know kind of diving back into um, some different observations that you've made, over the years, um, maybe some, you know, trail camera data that you've kind of recorded and kept track of. Uh, Obviously, I've seen that you run a lot of cameras on a lot of, uh, a vast majority of uh, acreage of ground. Um, So, yeah, if you want to kind of dive into, you know, some of the the, uh, key takeaways from the the trail camera data you've ran over the years, uh, I think that'd be be great for a lot of listeners that, you know, just haven't seen that much trail camera data.
1: Yep. Um, Yeah, so I've been heavily data for probably at least five or six years now um it was it's just kind of one of those things where uh i was starting to see trends and patterns as i would you know kind of later in the more like after the season you know going through your cards and intel i would notice like geez what was going on this day or this week like why were we getting so many pictures these days and and i knew it wasn't just a fluke like there had to have been uh you know real true factors that were causing deer to move better on certain days and also there's certain days where they don't uh move as well either so um i started paying more attention to moon phase and uh you know even barometric pressure wind uh most importantly uh Uh, temperature which has been like the biggest uh factor that i've found doing this yep but um you know like i said so it it kind of also uh made me uh increase the amount of cameras you know that i that i wanted to run um not only did i want to uh have more cameras out just for my business but it was just like it seems like the more cameras i put out the more i more i seem to learn and just really makes you a better hunter overall but um the past few years uh we've ran you know uh, roughly 150 cameras this year i think there was a few few periods where we probably had 160 170 out so that's what's cool about this time of year is i'm going through that data uh and kind of learning you know what what happened you know this past season and if we want to just touch on this past season a little bit um
0: yeah what sure let's
1: dive seems like so far although i'm not through all the data yet but it seems like the best activity was more around that mid-october period started to see a a spike around uh november 8th and then it uh you know it as of right now the best day i have so far it could change but was november 13th which is a little bit odd because uh like this last season uh, you know, before, or, or I want to say uh, over a year ago in, in 2021, um, our best day was November 6th. That's a little bit more typical. Yep. Um, but what I, year to year, is it, it seems like our best days are you know, best year days. I call them 30, 30 days is, uh, highs in the thirties and lows in the thirties, or even, uh, if you get you know 20 degree days tend to be good too so uh just seems like during the rut that at least the deer that we're hunting i mean obviously deer move every day but the best days seem to be those 30 30 or 30 20 days yeah and we really didn't get them consistently this year till uh, mid-november i will say in 2021 um it was a uh the best day like i said november 6th now it was a did get to 50 degrees that day but it was also the coldest morning we had in the rut and in the woods really if if uh you're monitoring temperatures it's almost always going to be cooler in the woods yep but usually our best days like i said are them 30 30 or 30 20 days and that's i guess you know it, it really just like i said earlier um it seems to be our best movement is around those perfect ideal temperature days and that's what i'm seeing this past season
0: yeah for sure now when you're running all these cameras how often are you checking some of these different cameras are you basically leaving these all season and then going back in and retrieving these chips you know after season's over for some of them or
1: um yeah it varies all over the place i got some you know that i might go a year without checking uh i have some that it seems like i'm checking almost weekly Mm you know it kind of jumps around um I will say uh, in some situations, you know, I find that you're a little bit better off not checking them as often, uh, especially if like, you know, you're more around the bedding area or somewhere where deer are more concentrated. Uh, But for instance, if it's just like a travel corridor that, you know, a buck just kind of randomly, you know, comes through, then you can probably get away with checking that a little more often. So it just kind of depends on where your cameras are placed, and that's how I factor on you know when or how often i'm gonna check them
0: right right yeah for sure um so as far as peak daylight movement dates um mm-hmm. what was kind of what would you say i know you kind of you know roughly kind of hit on those those couple dates um yep. which is funny you said those two because i i shot a really nice uh well it's pretty nice michigan buck here on on our farm in northern michigan on november 8th and oh, okay um, yep and then um but i had probably my best daylight buck activity uh dates were probably i want to say the sixth i want to say november 1st and the 6th i believe were my best daylight you know mature buck activity days um obviously our weather's a little bit different up here than it was and
1: not to interrupt you but you're usually getting weather ahead of us versus like yep the jet stream goes through you before it gets me plus you're a little bit more north you're seeing some colder temperatures most likely so you know my intel really shouldn't be exactly what uh what you're seeing as as well especially when it comes to uh weather-based movement so
0: yeah yeah no i mean it definitely makes sense when you kind of when you can start to put those pieces together and i think that's what's kind of cool is talking to guys in different states that hunt different areas you know observing what what they're seeing in the field based on you know that cold front or those those weather um changes and then you can kind of correlate those with where you're hunting too and you know if yep. those are kind of matching up so you know as you can see that that weather front kind of progressing across you know those states i think that's something interesting exactly. that i've kind of tried to follow and sometimes you can piece it together of course you know Absolutely. sometimes sometimes during the rut it's all bets are off you just got to be out there but <laughs> but uh sure. do the best you can with what you know so yeah. um, um
1: i i will say though is and I'm, I've told myself uh, right after this past season, um, like I used to be the kind of guy, especially once we get like sort of in the teens of October. I mean, I would hunt every morning, every afternoon, not really doing much for all day sits. Plus, with guiding, like uh, I don't really ever get the time to do long sits as it is, but you know, a couple hours in the morning, maybe an hour or two in the afternoon. But honestly, like I see so much impact you know with weather and specifically temperature that i told myself this coming season i'm probably actually only going to hunt uh the key weather days not saying you can't kill deer you know at different you know even on an 80 degree day or whatever Yep. Um, but kind of my point is is between guiding you know family stuff and just life in general and having the ability to to really hunt whenever i want and whenever we get Uh, these peak weather conditions it's just kind of like a no-brainer situation because uh, I killed my PA buck this past season November 12th and that as of right now was a top three movement day for us Um, you know perfect perfect weather situation then the season before I killed on November 6th was a top weather day and I could just go back probably the past i don't know seven out of ten deer i've killed or ten bucks i've killed in pennsylvania have all have all been top five weather days Mm. so it's like why beat yourself up and maybe that's not the word but like why you know put so much time in when you know you can hunt on these perfect weather scenarios and it just seems like you can capitalize really you know way better and just kind of uh, have a little more moderation in your life, you know. Yeah, for sure. Smart, you know, instead of hunting your butt off every single day, every single minute that you that you have.
0: And as well, I think you put you know, especially with private property and with public too. If you're targeting that you know specific mature buck on public, there's just a yep. higher probability that you're going to go in and end up busting them or, or screwing it up if he you know ends up scent busting you or seeing you. And that's yep. what I try to tell a lot of guys, you know, on on properties that I consult on. <laughs> excuse me um that you know if if you can build that depth of cover you know on your property and and if you don't have to go in all the way to the back you know of your whatever 40 80 acres you know to kill that buck then don't do it you know hunt the hunt the outsides hunt the front of the property make that buck come to you you know per se and um there's a higher you know a lot higher success rate um that you're going to be able to kill that deer without spooking them first um,
1: no, I couldn't agree more.
0: So, yeah, that's just, you know, different observations, but for sure. Now, have you noticed, kind of speaking of, you know, hunting, you know, in depths. Um, have you noticed kind of, obviously you cover a lot of public ground. Um, I've noticed on some different public parcels that I've hunted, either it seems like I, I'll find the bucks really deep in, or sometimes I'll find them closer to roads or houses or stuff like that you know and obviously not really close but you know somewhat close it seems like kind of that middle ground you get a lot of hunting pressure and it kind of almost seems to kind of part where you see that movement i don't know if you've seen that same thing before
1: um yes yes and no like i will say hunting pressure is the number one factor uh towards where mature bucks are going to live and where they're not going to live on public land uh there's There's no other factor that's going to have more of an influence on that. Yep. But really, uh, we have, in most areas, we have, you know, what do I want to say? Maybe minimal to moderate hunting pressure where uh, you can still kill a mature buck 100 yards off of a drivable road or, you know, maybe even near someone else's house. So um, it's all just based on the area and and you know the pressure around there however there are you know there are areas that are more remote and way back in that just seem to be more consistent more productive because they're never getting hunting pressure uh you know just most people don't want to have to go real far uh, especially like an archery season uh, when you're hauling stands and a lot of different gear and gun season you'll get more people that'll go back in because they're just kind of still hunt their way back and hunt their way out but um you you can never go wrong with you know trying to get away and hunt more remote areas but overall it's just it's all based on the hunting pressure
0: yeah yep i mean i think if you can find you know i've obviously access is huge if you can get into a spot a lot easier you know that'll minimize your your overall hunting pressure um especially if you want to hunt that spot a couple times so you know i obviously i'm sure you've done it i've seen it on you know hunting public a lot i try to use boats or canoes you know waterways drainage ditches there's all these different ways that you can kind of think outside the box and um, to get yep. into some of these areas and really kind of minimize your hunting pressure
1: or your intrusion yep. um one thing i use i try to do because uh, you know like i said before you know i'm hunting mountain country is if i'm hunting a morning set I'll usually try to access from the top because a lot of your deer, uh, especially bucks, will be working their way up the mountain from the morning Then, versus in the evening. I may most likely consider accessing from the bottom and working my way up. That way, you know, I'm not always so concerned about bumping that particular deer, mm-hmm. but I also don't like to bump a lot of deer going to and from because, you know it only takes one deer to go by him or you know just him hearing uh you know deer running or just any kind of sense of pressure in that area um also ha- can have a huge factor on you know that buck staying in that bedroom you know much later or altering his route because uh, he knows something's just not right so access uh, i liked how you brought that up because i do uh i do always try to think uh you know, am I accessing this area right? Not so much in the rut, um, but, you know, many yeah. times other than that, when I'm hunting specific uh, buck movements and patterns, I think access is a huge deal.
0: Yep, yep, for sure. I think it all kind of ties into overall hunting pressure like we were talking about. Um, yep. So, yeah, just just to kind of touch on a little bit of some observations that you've you've basically kind of noted over, you know, the years of use, doing a lot of scouting and finding individual buck beds. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what would be kind of the the key takeaways um, for the listeners that you've kind of found as far as, obviously, scouting buck beds? We talked about a little bit of depth of cover, um, yep. obviously food sources, correlation to, you know, doe bedding, stuff like that. Um, yep. But there's obviously, there's a lot of details, I think, that goes into finding a buck bed and, you know, when is he bedding there? Um, obviously, there's a lot of outside influences that change. Sometimes you have a buck, you know, that might bed there just once at this particular time of the year, and he might shift around in this general area. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, you've you've done that. So, if you can kind of dive in more on some sure. of the, some of the key um, topics.
1: Yeah, uh, I will say, you know, something that's really not brought up a lot on buck bedding is visibility. Um, you know, most people, when you think of buck bedding, you think of like A mature buck bedding in the most nastiest hard to get to place just to try to get away from everyone and anything and that's that's a fairly common situation but i will say the majority of the best buck beds i've ever found and even some of the most active ones um there is always really good visibility now even if it's in a thicket like he was still able to find somewhere in that cover where he could still see very well. A lot of times there's just like a you know, a good opening or uh just just some some good lanes and features that he can still have good visibility versus like finding just a real nasty thick spot or a bunch of blowdowns and like trying to hide. It does seem like the visual of the buck betting site tends to get overlooked and it's seems to be a huge factor in where some or probably the majority of mature bucks bet. Um, a lot of times I've always said it this way, like you can picture yourself like trying to find a good gun hunting stand and just having like a perfect view and visual of an area where you can really watch in many different directions. Like it seems like a lot of mature bucks pick those spots where nothing can really ever see that deer before it sees them. Like they really it's not just wind and their nose and their ears like they use their eyes just as much as any other uh you know sense that they have and maybe their eyes just as much as their nose so that's what I found that um has been the most unique and something that I don't hear a lot of other hunters talking about I'm just kind of surprised that it seems like a lot of other hunters haven't caught on to that maybe it's just you know more mountain country but I've been amazed, at, you know, where some bucks, you know, where I found them bedding or found specific really well-used buck beds. of just like, holy cow, this deer actually definitely has the best seat in the house. Yep, and Nothing's going to get to it uh, without it seeing them first.
0: Yep. No, for sure. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I've, you know, like we were talking about previously, I've found a lot of those buck beds down in those swamps and in that thick cover, but I've mainly found those on properties where I believe they just got pushed down there. And I don't think, sure. I think if you have that ideal situation, those bucks yep. want that view, you know, obviously they want cover, you know, on the backside of them or around them for the most part. Um, yep. You know, and hunt that, and, and be able to bed there with that wind, you know, blowing over their back. Um, yep. You know, face, or uh, with their back to that cover. But yeah, you know, when I try to, you know obviously, you know, when I'm on properties and, and, you know, the whole buck bedding thing has kind of come up and, um, obviously it's kind of a, it's a very dependent situation. Uh, you know, it's, it's obviously never going to, you know, be the same for every property or it's not, you know, sure. you can't create that on every property, but obviously there's some properties where you can create those situations. And, um, you know, I've tried to create those and, and mimic a lot of those same situations that I've seen, whether it be on private land or public land, and, um, you know, I found if I can, if I can get a lot of screening in there and, you know, compartmentalize quite a bit. And if he's got a view, typically I'm making it on a high ground, um, yep. then I've figured I've, I've seen that that success rate of that, that bed has gone up a lot for them actually yep. using it.
1: So Absolutely. Uh, I will, I will say like, uh, the more, and especially cause I don't have much experience on private land, uh, but I will say the more, uh. Uh, attractive, and the more you can uh, put in that bedroom, especially one thing that uh, some a lot of hunters overlook is food in the bedroom tends to be very important too. Like they'll get up and feed in those bedding areas, you know, all throughout the day. So the more you have in there, and the more features, and uh, you know, keeping it non-pressured, the more consistently those bedding areas will get used, and most likely. You know the more dominant mature deer in your area are going to use those places
0: yeah yep no for sure so have you ever ran any cameras in buck beds
1: yep um it's something i'm still uh i'm still learning to say the least uh this past year uh i i ran you know probably 15 20 cameras on buck beds um biggest issue we had this year i was doing pretty well with it in the summer and even some into the early fall. And then uh, where I screwed up was we had a really, I think I brought this up, at least the conditions wise, but uh, we had a really dry summer and fall. And even a lot of our buck bedding, uh, even traditional beds, uh, they just, they weren't being used because, you know, water, uh, such a big deal. And, you know, especially in the big woods and mountain country, like, you know, you can have 20 springs on a mountain, you know, near bedding and then when all that water is just pocketed down in the low valleys it seems to switch the bedding so a lot of the beds that i had cameras on uh more likely you know in the fall you know hardly got used at all i did have some though uh that um you know were active and were you know got some really good intel on them also i will say though versus like you can put a camera on a scrape and I, in my opinion, at least nine out of 10 bucks won't be extremely affected by it. If you put cameras on beds, it's a total different scenario. Yep. They don't want to be bothered. They yep. don't feel comfortable. Um, so you got to do a really good job of hiding the camera. You know, I elevated most of them. I still had some bucks picking them off. Uh, I still think they can they can just sense whether even if it's an electrical signal or they tend to just, you know, look up, you know, maybe when they were fawns, they learned that they had to watch for like hawks and you know, eagles and uh, owls. I don't, I don't know, but they still tend to look up because I had some spot my elevated cameras that were, you know, up, you know, 10, 12 feet in a tree. So, but the ones that I was able to, uh, to really hide well, um, it really didn't seem to have an impact in, bucks were still using them some um it's as far as what i learned uh <laughs> it it's just crazy like i thought you know you'd see more consistencies but the the data and the information is like all over the place as far as like i've seen bucks come in different wind directions uh some bucks will lay there for five minutes and some will lay there for two hours um but uh it's still really cool. Uh, what I, what I did find it, it, does seem like when you find a good, you know, a good bed, um, they, they get used year after year. Uh, yep. it does seem to be more <laughs> seasonal based than, uh, just like year round, at least, you know, where I'm like finding that some bedding areas and some beds get used more in the summer. Even some early fall, and then like right now, I've got cameras on beds. So, uh just pulled a camera on a buck bed the other day, and I kind of regret doing it because in the past month it, it's really been hot, and uh, I feel like going in there, I might have disturbed it a little bit. But uh, as far as like uh, saying that um, I really completely figured out buck bedding by putting trail cameras on them, I, I can't say I have have that kind of information yet but uh i definitely uh am intrigued by it and most importantly like i said when you find good bedding uh these cameras on these beds uh are definitely telling me you know you definitely found something these spots are getting used year after year
0: yep yep for sure and i think another thing that that makes it you know hard to actually get some sort of pattern on this that i've observed is i'm sure as you know um, you know, with the thousands of pictures that you go through every year of mature bucks, every mature buck's got a little bit different, you know, characteristic or personality to them. And, sure. um, you know, they're kind of, I've, I've noticed they're just, they're individuals, you know, so you, there's a lot of outside influences that can, you know, really, um, you know, influence how they're going to bed, where they're going to bed, whether it be weather, yep. that buck hunting, you know, human pressure, Um, You know, there's so many different things, and that's, you know, it's like the mystery. You know, I've heard of a couple different guys, um, and I've I've got to work with, I don't know if you ever heard of Jim Ward. Um, I don't think so. Yeah, he's a big habitat guy. He's traveled all over the country, and uh, he's cut on a lot of different properties in a lot of different states. And uh, he did a trail camera study, and uh, he ran 24 cameras on, uh, I think, 24 different beds, and he ran it for... I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I want to say around two months and uh, collected a whole bunch of data, a whole bunch of pictures. Uh, I think it was somewhere around three million pictures he had to go through. Oh, jeez. And, um, yeah, what, he noticed that he never had a buck come into a bed uh, before 830 in the morning. And wow. uh, he never had a buck that bedded for more than an hour and a half.
1: Um, wow. I've seen completely different. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. So that was interesting because I've – obviously heard this stuff and I, I've messed around a little bit with running cameras and beds and um, I, you know I've got some different you know I haven't had a lot of mature bucks you know in because I haven't had a lot of really good situations where I can put cameras in and obviously some of these areas I know where these beds are but like you were saying I don't want to risk going in there and putting a camera in there because I know it's gonna screw that up so um, yeah. you know I, I'm I'm actually eager to get out this year and I'm gonna do some more public land scouting and see if I can find some more beds and uh you know get some cameras in those and you know it's it's always a learning curve you just keep learning and kind of keep observing and i think it's maybe more important for guys to you know if you're after a certain buck and you know you think you kind of know where his core area is maybe try to focus on that you know specific buck rather than trying to collect this data from multiple bucks you know it's it's almost like so much you can't even process um yep so um
1: i will say uh like particularly uh early season and then i would say more in the late season too uh in the big woods at least i think you have much greater chances hunting around bedding versus food sources our our bucks at least mature bucks tend to be way more nocturnal in their feeding areas and way more daytime you know active around and in bedding so uh definitely uh you know learn the betting. if you're you know if you're a public land hunter you know listening to this i really think you know there's way more activity around bedding on public land than there is in food sources so uh you know just figuring out the bedding is really a huge deal um but one thing too i, I wanted to touch on like you'll you'll hear hunters and i get people talk to me like oh i found like this this great buck bed i think i got this buck pegged well hardly any bucks just have like one bed they use. And honestly, I wouldn't even be able to say, uh, I, I wouldn't know if I, I, don't know if I could agree that there's any buck that just uses one single bed. I, I'm not seeing that at all. Like yeah. they have their areas. Um, and you know, maybe it, it could, there could be some bucks or bucks that are especially mature bucks that may only have six, eight, 10 beds, but I'm seeing it more widespread than that. Um, and sometimes it varies you know some bucks you know when you brought up you know they're all individuals some of them seem to bounce from ridge to ridge and some of them tend to be a little more focused on one particular area so definitely got to get to know the the actual deer that you're hunting and uh as far as just finding a buck bed i mean that's always a great find but uh it's not uh, anywhere near close to saying you have that deer pegged.
0: oh yeah no for sure 100 you got to Focus on kind of the broad spectrum of things and and your hunt approach and you know like a lot of the things that we covered in this yeah. and then um, you know you know, maybe get lucky and you can really um, or you know of course you're not really getting lucky you're putting in the time and the work <laughs> um, sure. and uh, you know you get on you get on a really good good buck and kind of can put all the pieces of the puzzle together so absolutely yeah no well this was awesome if you have anything else um, you know to kind of cover. Uh, let me know and <clears throat> we'll dive more into that but yeah this no, is... i uh
1: i feel like we had a great you know thorough conversation um i you know definitely enjoyed uh you know the, the chat with you and uh especially i i'm always a big fan of like northern hunters although you know might think being in pennsylvania i'm more of a northeast guy but i uh, you know i've always heard great things about michigan uh the swamp bucks you know the up and all those kind of areas so it was just cool to get to talk to someone especially that uh i know uh kind of sees things uh, the way i see them as far as deer hunting goes so uh hopefully uh you know me being from pennsylvania you know your listeners will still uh, uh definitely pick up on s- some new things that, that we brought up and uh i definitely love to have an opportunity to talk with you again
0: yeah well i really appreciate you coming on here and sharing all the info and stuff that you've learned over the years uh obviously you you know you share this stuff for free but um there's a lot of time and effort that uh you know goes into all this and i I can definitely i can start to appreciate it so (laughs) Uh,
1: absolutely no i hear you on that so thanks a lot definitely keep in touch and uh best of luck to you i know next season's far away and hopefully we touch base before them but still uh uh, it'll be here before we know it. So yep, best of for luck sure. to you as this coming season arrives.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, same to you. And uh, I'll definitely we'll keep in touch and uh, maybe get back on here and do another podcast. If we get closer to season. So, all
1: right, bud. Take care. All right. Yep,
0: you too. Well, thanks everyone for tuning into this episode. I really enjoyed it. Hope you guys did too. And um, it was cool uh, diving into some different public land tactics with Steve. Uh, very knowledgeable guy. Spent a lot of time on uh, public land in scouting and hunting. Um, so I really appreciate him coming on here. So, uh, yeah, if you're interested in any um, services he has to offer, I'll link all his info in the description below. Uh, be sure to go check him out. Follow him on Instagram. Um, he posts a lot of really cool uh, content on there. So, yeah, I really appreciate you guys all tuning in. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And remember to always be a better steward of God's creation. Thanks, guys.